It's October 6th, 2013. Our message today is called Hillel Sandwich. Yeah, if you can find a message on that somewhere, then uh, let me know and I want to contact that pastor. Hillel Sandwich. Raise your hand if you know who Hillel was. Okay, Hillel lived in the first century, for those of you that didn't know. Actually, he lived prior to the first century. Uh, born somewhere around 110 B.C. And he lived to about 10 A.D. So in the Bible, when you read about King Herod or Caesar Augustus, who was in power when Jesus was born, uh, Hillel's life uh, covered their entire reigns for the most part. He was the most prominent and influential teacher within Judaism during his day. So for the 40 years that were the last 40 years of his life, in the first 10 years of Jesus' life, this guy was the most prominent teacher about the things of God. Do you think that that's important at all? Jesus did not grow up in a vacuum. He, I don't mean that literally or <laughs> metaphorically. He didn't grow up independent of other influences. In fact, as you study the Word, you find out that he very often taught about the teachings of the day. And he was not ashamed to say whether they were wrong or right. He, he said very often things like, you've heard it said, but I tell you. That was usually a scathing rebuke to somebody who taught something that was wrong. Other times, he absolutely endorsed an existing teaching. One of the most famous things that all children learn, they learn it under a different name, usually in grade school, that Hillel is famous for is called the ethic of reciprocity. If you have difficulty saying reciprocity, that's okay. We decided to call it the golden rule. Now, the most interesting thing is the golden rule is hung on most classroom walls, the scriptural references removed from it, and it can be quoted in one of two ways. It's an interesting thing. Let me tell you how it came first. Jesus was not the first person to say this. Hillel was. That which is hateful to you do not do to your fellow man. This is the whole of the Torah. The rest is an explanation. Go and learn. Hillel taught that the entire Bible of his day could be summarized with don't do hateful things to someone else. And the way you determine whether it's hateful is would you want it done to you? And the Bible is an explanation of that. How many of you would agree with that? Most of you. Turn with me to Matthew 7. And we're going to be in the seventh verse as a place to start. It's okay to say you're there when you're there. It lets me know it's okay to move on. I don't want to leave anybody behind this morning. In Matthew 7, 7, we hear, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. Is that good news? That's about as good as it gets. We don't serve a God who's clenched fist with us. We don't serve a God who says, you can't come near me, you can't approach me. We serve a God who says, ask of me and you will receive. Now, we need to learn to ask for the right things, but he wants us to interact with him and look how he further explains it. Which of you... If his son asks for bread, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you're evil, and 
That's what the Bible says about an unregenerate man, evil. Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So let me ask you, does God want to give you good things? He does. He desires to put into your life things that he calls good. How many of you know that sometimes we call things good that he doesn't, right? When I was in seventh grade, for instance, my every desire was evil all of the time. The things that I thought would be, (laughs) teachers are laughing out there. The things that I thought would benefit me in the end would have killed me had I gotten them. And the few things I did manage to get my hands on produced death in my life. We don't always know what is good for us. But God does. And when we learn to ask him for the right things, like any good father, he desires to give them to us. Look at verse 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. What's the difference between what Hillel said and what Jesus said? Hillel said, do not do what is hateful. Jesus takes that negative statement and makes it a positive one. He says, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. In this way, we see that there's a difference in the teaching of Hillel, as good as it was, and the teaching of Jesus. Hillel spoke of godliness in terms of refraining from things that were wrong. How many in the church world see godliness as refraining from doing things that are wrong? Many do. We even have lists and codes of conduct in church. If you're going to be in this church, you can't do these how many ever things, and the list is ever growing. I hate things that are, are taught that are not in the Bible. Now, we might all agree that it's not good to electrocute yourself, right? If you don't agree with that statement, then I don't know where, what we're going to do with the rest of the morning. We might all agree that there are things that are not specifically addressed in the Bible that you shouldn't do, but I don't believe that it is the function of a church to define for you things that you shouldn't do that are written outside of the Bible. And the reason that I don't is it it puts an improper emphasis on the Scripture. Jesus didn't talk in terms of what you don't do. He spoke in terms of what you should do. So it might feel like a godly thing to go hide in a cave for 80 years and never speak to anyone, and maybe people are hanging out outside the cave waiting for your very first word, and we could call that a monastic religious life and go, oh, what a holy person. I don't think that it's holy at all. And the reason I don't think it's holy at all is that's not where Jesus put the emphasis. He put emphasis on doing for other people the kind of things you would like done for you. And he used as an example, your father in heaven wants to do good things for you. Just ask him. So let me ask you, church, what kind of good things has God done for you? Has he forgiven you? Oh, then he requires of us to forgive other people. Has he provided for you things you didn't deserve but needed? Yes, then then he may require that of us. Did he reach out to you while you were still damned as a sinner? Then he may require of us to reach out to others even when they're living as a damned sinner. We serve a God who set for us an example that he wants us to follow. Now, look at this next few words, because they're important. Verse 13, enter through the narrow gate, 
For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now, it's debatable where Jesus said these words. Many people think he said it on the Mount of Beatitudes. If you read Luke 6, some would say he said it on the plains. It might even be clear that he said this kind of thing more than once. Doesn't any good teacher repeat themselves sometimes? Anybody ever taught a class in here? Raise your hand if you've taught a class. If you believe that you can say something once and the, and, and the students will get it, uh, our own lives defy that logic. I'm amazed the number of times we can announce something, put it in the bulletin, put it on the screens, and then the day of the event, I, I didn't, nobody told me. <laughs> I, hear it, I hear it every week. And about the time I'd like to throw a big rock at you for that, somebody says, you know, Pastor, when is the men's retreat? I'm like, eh, you know, ask Jennifer, I don't know. <laughs> and, of course, it's been announced on the screens and in the bulletin, and at some point I had to give approval for it to get there, <laughs> you know. So it's, it's not a problem that is unique to you. All human beings have to hear things more than once. Jesus was such a good teacher that he did something very specific here. Not only did he repeat himself, and he said it in more than one place, but if you were to take a frontal view of the temple, the temple entrance was a very narrow pathway. The stairwell was maybe 12 feet wide, but the temple exit was more like 40 feet wide. Those that have had the blessing of going to Israel may have seen a model of the temple that a man spent his life building. I got a chance to sit and talk with him. He gave me some of the stones and, and then we could leave the next day and go see where the temple had been excavated or rather the outer retaining walls had. And you know what's sticking out the side of them? A stairwell. And what this does is it gives you a backdrop for Jesus' words. Those who want to approach God find it a very narrow opening because it requires you to imitate him. He requires you to turn from anything that might cause you to move to the left or the right. But those who are walking the other direction, away from the presence of God, well, there's plenty of room on that path. You're not going to bump into anything that would hurt you there because the adversary does not oppose those who are going the wrong way. He opposes those who are going the right way, Yahweh, the highway of salvation. When Jesus said this, it's something that nobody could misunderstand. My daddy wants to give you good things, but it's going to require you to do for other people what you would want him to do for you, and this is narrow. And yet when you ask most people, hey, how do you treat your fellow man? What do, what do most people say? I, I try to do right by everybody. I never did anybody wrong, unless, of course, you talk to their neighbors or you talk to their relatives or you talk to the people that know them, and what do those people say about them? Well, this is where all of our hurts come from in the world, isn't it? I mean, it, it really is. We all are pretty good in our own eyes, but how do we measure up to what God's Word says about us? And if we asked those who are closest to us, not in a popularity contest, but what would their testimony be about us? Barna did a famous survey asked how many Americans believed they were born again in an evangelical sense. And that number was upwards of 80%. That was surprising. 
But they asked those same people whether they thought their neighbor was born again, and more than 50% of them said no. What does that tell us? Everybody believes they're right with God, but nobody thinks their neighbor is. And yet our relationship with God is reflected in the way we treat other people. How else can you get around the rule that we call golden? The way that you love the Lord will be reflected in the way that you love each other. How important is it that we love each other? Come on, you can say it out loud. I'm going to love people today. I want to tell you about a Hillel sandwich. During the Passover, what the Jews call Seder, they reenact the customs of the Passover. They, this is a formal thing that is done every year and has been done every year since the very first Exodus. They call it the Haggadah. Now, if you can't remember those Hebrew words, it's okay. That just means the telling. And the telling of the story includes God's very specific instructions on what they're to eat. And in that section, people are encouraged to eat what Numbers 9.11 says. Numbers 9.11 says this, They are to celebrate it on the 14th day of the second month at twilight. They are to eat the lamb together with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Well, Jewish history says that when Hillel read Numbers 9, and it was Passover time, he took a flexible matzah, not like our hard crackers today, but more, come on, we got any Hispanics in the house today? Anybody speak Spanish in the house today? We, we grabbed a tortilla, an unleavened tortilla, and you wrapped it around something. You wrapped it around a bitter herb, a horseradish, and you wrapped it around a paschal lamb. Let's just for argument's sake say shawarma or gyros, right? Hillel was on to something, wasn't he? Anybody in here like gyros? The interesting thing is what they taught about this. They taught that this particular sandwich, which Hillel ate because God required that they eat these things, referred to something. They say it this way. It is a um, moral migration from wickedness to virtue. How on earth could you say that? Because the first thing about that sandwich you're going to taste and you would eat it every year is horseradish. How many of you have ever eaten wasabi? I watched Cody one time eat an ice cream scooper of uh, wasabi. He turned purple. It was hilarious. We were particularly proud of ourselves that we got him to do it. Because that's what friends do, right? They get you to do embarrassing things and then they laugh at you while you do it. Guys, when they ate that, Hillel taught them to think about the sin in their life and the way that it burned their lives and the way that it brought tears to their eyes. And every time they ate that, they progressed through the sandwich and they got to something that was unleavened bread. It was pure and it quenched that burning sin sensation. Like that sin sensation. And so they thought that the actual sandwich was a type, something that they could eat that would remind them that our lives are supposed to go from wickedness into a kind of healing, nurturing, restoring thing. When we talk about our Christianity, we often talk in terms of how much Scripture we know what church we're a part of, how well we attend it. 
But the actual measure of a Christian is, have we gone from something that burns everybody's eyes and causes tears to something that brings restoration, wraps all of that up and swallows it and gets away, get, does away with it? See, do you want to be around Christians that just know the Word really well or those that are interested in helping you restore your life? How many of you want to be around restoring Christians? Oh, with all my heart, I want to be that. And if you want to be around restoring Christians, according to the ethic of reciprocity, or the golden rule, what do you need to be? You have to be a restoring Christian. To truly eat a Hillel sandwich means that repentance precedes healing. Repentance precedes restoration or any action of any kind. Listen to how Jesus put this in this passage and notice that the cross comes before the new life. Turn with me to Matthew 10. You'll be in verse 37. Say there when you're there. Y'all not struggling thinking about sandwiches, are you? Matthew 10, 37. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He talks of taking up a cross before he ever talks about finding new life. The truth is, in every action that we put our own nature to death, we deny what comes naturally to us, there's life in a step like that because we are proving in that moment that He's our Lord. We are proving through that very action that we have a saving faith, a faith that doesn't just talk about what we believe, it puts it into practice. Every time you take an action for the glory of the kingdom of God that you would not normally take in your life, it's a testament to your willingness to lose your life and take up His. You know, this passage has a pretty shocking statement. In America, we've been taught that our families, our families are closer than anything else. We've been taught that we cling to our families more than anything else. Jesus, I told you, did not fall out of a vacuum. He, he didn't drop from the heavens to the earth independent of the teaching of the day. Where the teaching of the day was wrong, he corrected it. Where the teaching of the day was right, he endorsed it. Let me tell you another teaching from his time. The ties between the teacher and the student take precedent over that of a father and a son. For your father brought you into this world, but your teacher, your rabbi, shows you how to enter into the world to come. The singular most important thing that we can do as believers is take so seriously the words of Jesus that at the cost of all, we put them into practice in our daily life. Boy, that can really be difficult sometimes though, can it? Have you ever taken a step for Jesus that no one in your family understood? Raise your hand if that's true. Now, those of you with your hands raised, speak out loud. Say, yeah, yeah, I've done that. Yes. Okay, now we're starting to have church. So the gut-wrenching truth of the gospel is that the golden rule and every other teaching of Jesus is not optional. 
It's not something that we get to choose as an elective if we want to. Turn with me to 1 John. We're going to be in the fifth verse. Say there when there. 1 John, the first chapter and the fifth verse. This is the message we have heard from him and that we declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. The gospel says this, and that verse helped get me saved because I claimed to be in the light for many years of my life, and I wasn't. And nobody knew that I wasn't any better than me. One of the ways that I knew I was not in the light, even though I was telling everybody I was and telling myself that I was, is every night I was repenting for the same sin. Some of it had gone on since the second grade. And I was never made into a new creature. I never had victory over those sins. Instead, I had been a slave to them my whole life, and I merely felt guilty about it. That's the bad news. The good news is God didn't design any of us to live in that situation. He does not want you covered in guilt and shame. He doesn't want you kneeling beside your bed or laying in your bed praying every night, Lord, forgive me for what I did 10 years ago and continue to do to this day. In fact, if we ask him, he will give us power over those things. If we will lean on him, he will give us the new life. But the very first thing that has to happen is we have to visit the cross. We have to begin to take up actions that we would not normally take unless he was the Lord and he was demanding it. Now, how can you know that you're doing that if you have never done anything that is hard for you? If you've never stood out in any way for Jesus? If you've never taken a step that you're worried would be disapproved of? This is how the altar call was born, friends. It, this came from evangelists who were trying to get people to take a step towards Jesus, something they wouldn't normally do, be singled out in a crowd. Some say Peter did it on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 got saved. Of course, if 3,000 stepped forward with Peter, I don't know where they stood. There were no stages. There were no anything else. But they did understand something had to be done because they didn't ask, what must I believe to be saved? They said, what shall we do? We believe in this church in accordance with Orthodox Christianity that your actions prompted by faith as an expression of love are what makes someone a Christian. Not actions alone and not love alone. Actions that are prompted by your trust, your faith, and expressing a love for God. Which one of us could not add more of that to our lives? You know, your neighbors will be better off if you do. Your relatives will be better off if you do. Is it easy to give up on somebody? I'm going to tell you the truth. Somebody burns you once and what do we say? Shame on them. They burn you twice and what do we say? Shame on them, maybe. But if they burn you three times, what do we say? I remember when President Bush was trying to say that. He, he could not get it straight to save his life, even with a teleprompter. And the whole world made fun of him for it. Could there be a more unbiblical statement in the world than that? How many times did we burn Jesus? 
I mean, absolutely know what he wanted us to do and refuse to do it because of our social consciousness, because we're worried about being singled out, because it might hurt us or cost us something. And you know what? He didn't say shame on us. He died to remove our shame. Does Corinthians 13 hang on some people's walls? I mean, does the, the love chapter in the Bible, what do we do with keeps no record of wrongs and always trust? Well, we hang it on our wall and we forget it's there. This is not to scold us, friends. This is for a reason. To the extent that we can do something as simple as love someone who has wronged us, we are acting like Jesus. We are in the favor of Jesus. We are fulfilling one of his most basic teachings. We are doing to others what we would want done for us. How many of you would be pleasing to Jesus if you knew what to do? Come on now, how many of you would be pleasing to Jesus if you knew what to do? Well, this is one thing we definitely know what to do. We've been learning it even in a secular society from second grade forward. I had this hanging on my second grade classroom wall. I got suspended from that class so many times that I was eventually had to change schools, but it was hanging on the wall and I remember it. How easy is it to remember the teachings of God but to fail to put them into practice? I want to talk to you about an active walk. See, because we talk in terms of a static Christianity, something that is stationary, something that sits still, that says, I am a Christian. Why? Because in such and such year, I believed and was baptized. Listen to how the Bible talks about it. This is Psalm 119, verse 132, and we're going to put it on the screen for you. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do to those who love your name. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin. Somebody say, no sin. No sin. Let no sin rule over me. This was the expectation of a saint in the Older Testament that he would find mercy from God. Mercy was the chance to turn around, the chance to repent. And he says, as you always do to those who love your name, if you love the Lord enough, to want to repent, he will give you the opportunity to repent. And it doesn't stop there. He directs the footsteps of the righteous according to his word and will not let sin rule over them. Sin brings death, and he doesn't want you to be harmed. He does not want sin to reign in your life, not because he's a bad God who doesn't want you to have fun, it's because he doesn't want you to be harmed and to harm others. He wants you to be like him in the restoration business. How about this one? This comes from Romans 4 and starts in verse 12. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This verse in Romans speaks of the faith of Abraham as an action. Abraham showed his trust because when God said, leave Ur of the Chaldees, he got to walking. Who in their right mind would leave their family business, leave their country, leave everything that they had ever known and was going to what? A place God would one day show him. He hadn't even seen it. He didn't, didn't even know what was there. 
How do we normally give an altar call? We say, if you want help in this life and heaven in the next, if you want Disneyland in the sky, then come forward. We're telling them exactly what they're going to receive. I think it's silly, but we're telling them exactly what they're going to receive. I want you to consider the faith of Abraham. What you're doing is wrong. You have to leave it and walk in the direction I'll show you, and something is good at the end of it. I'm going to make you into a blessing. He didn't even know how or what. It even became clear to him that he would never receive it in this lifetime and that it would cause him to have to do things that no father would ever want to do, like take his son up onto a mountain. We're supposed to walk in that kind of faith. Can you look backwards and see footsteps? Those kind of footsteps. Can you look and say, I never wanted to separate myself from a religion I thought was dead because it was going to cost me in my family relationships. It was going to cost me in my professional life. But I believe the Lord said it, so I did it. I never wanted to be baptized because my whole family thought that I was baptized when I was young and that I was a believer. And I stepped out and did it despite the way everybody felt. Can you look backwards and see footsteps of faith in your life? See, when you can, that encourages you to take the next difficult step. When you can't, it shows you what still lies ahead of you. And it is as required as a belief that Jesus raised from the dead or died on the cross. No one will ever be saved sitting on what they think is salvation. Faith is active. It's living and active, just like his word. Look at 1 John 2, 6. Say there when you're there. Whoever claims to live in him must, what's it say? Walk as Jesus did. Did Jesus play it safe? Did Jesus do things that no man would do if it were simply left up to him? I mean, think about that. His mother and his brothers thought he was crazy and set out to take charge of him in the Gospel of Mark. His own cousin, whose life ambition was to announce the coming uh, of the Messiah, his coming, was so confused by his actions sometimes that he doubted in the last days of his life. Although he had thousands of people follow him at a time, what did he do when the crowds got large? He seemed to intentionally preach hard to run them off. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Jesus, do, do you know you offend some people with this? <laughs> do you want to leave too, he says? What person in their right mind trying to change the world runs off potential followers? How about with the rich young man? What pastor do you know that if a wealthy, fairly godly person comes up and says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? What pastor in his right mind looks at him and says, until you go sell everything you have, you can't be a part of what I'm doing? Does that go against everything that you would think you should do? You know what it did? It displayed the absolute supremacy of God's will in his life. How about when he was kneeling in a garden and he recognized what was going to be required of him? And he was so pressed that the Bible says he was in anguish. 
and angels had to attend to him. See, those Garden of Gethsemane moments show us where we're at in our lordship with Christ. And most Christians spend their life avoiding them, but you're not most Christians. We love the Lord in this community of faith. And our faith challenges us in new directions every day. And as you see the footsteps of the people around you, it ought to encourage you. Joel, have you walked through some mud recently? Does it encourage you to see that Joel's on the other side? Cody, you've been through difficulties? Does it encourage you, Dustin, that he's on the other side? Some, look at your neighbor and say, sometime you're going to have to walk with me. I don't need you to push my head under the mud. I need you to walk with me. I don't need you to tell everybody I'm sinking. I need you to walk with me. Sometimes I just need somebody to walk with me. You know why? We're all supposed to be walking in the footsteps of Jesus. You show me one downtrodden person, one prostitute, one tax collector, one demon-possessed person, one person who knew they were a sinner that Jesus stepped on their head. You won't find it. The closest you ever come to that is him calling religious leaders sons of the devil and brood of vipers. You know why? He wanted people to walk with him, and they thought their walk was pretty good just like it was. Come on, do you want to walk with the Lord? Yes. See, I know you do. That's why we can preach a message like this, is I know that you want to walk with the Lord. I want to tell you about another ancient teaching. Is that okay? This is one of the oldest sages of the Mishnah. His name was Yossi ben Yozer. With a name like that, you can remember it, huh? Yossi ben Yozer? I mean, how'd you like to, why? You, you'd shorten it to, my name's Yo. <laughs> Yossi ben Yozer, really? Could you leave out the ben Yozer? It literally means Yossi, son of Yozer. There's so many funny names in the Bible. Eleazar, son of Dodo. I mean, are you kidding me? Other languages are like that, though. Yosi ben Yozer used to teach his disciples, and he said, cover yourself with the dust from your rabbi's feet. Are you following Jesus closely enough that the dust he kicks up has gotten on you so that people begin to treat you the way they treated him? Or do we follow at such a distance, a 2,000-year distance, that we're like, I'm pretty sure Jesus would do that. Let's have a committee meeting. Let's deliberate it. Let's fight over it until we are left with no choice and our actual action cannot be associated with Jesus because we deliberated so long. This is the difference between dry, dead, institutional Christianity and something that is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword that is relevant in the lives of believers. Saints, this is not a congregation where the pulpit is what's important or when what comes from the stage is what's important. This is a community of believers and when what comes out of your life looks like Jesus' life, then we are vibrant and we shine. The stars of this church are those who will walk with Jesus Christ, not those who preach or lead worship. Do you want to walk with the Lord with all of your heart? See, it's everything. It is everything. As we're walking with the Lord, we need to remember that this is not as difficult as many pastors just like me have made it. 
is not so hard that it can't be done. Look at Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who are perfect and well-groomed. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You know who can't come to him? Those without a burden. You know who can't come to him? Those that are not exasperated with their life as usual. Those who have no problems have no place in the kingdom. Because the kingdom is for those who are distressed and indebted. The kingdom is for those who have tried it their own way and they don't like the way it was going. They want him. Who does Jesus take? He takes the wearied. He takes the burdened. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, we're in church, and you're not going to disagree with Jesus in church, so I'm not going to ask you to. I'm just going to tell you that from time to time, I've read a verse like that and went, what you talking about, Willis? My burden is easy, and my yoke is light? This has been the hardest thing I've ever done. How could we say my yoke is easy? Was it easy for the Williams to sell everything they have and move to Mexico? Or after they're so established in Mexico, they think that they'll never leave to be uprooted and leave? Was it easy? Of course it's not easy. How could Jesus say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light? What makes everything difficult in the kingdom is our desire to do something other than what he says. Once we completely surrender our desires to his, it's like, move, sure. Where do you want me to go? Go repent to that person? No problem. You're my boss. I'm on my way. And we talk like that until we're told to do it. And it is hard. I wrestled for an hour in the worship service with the thought that I had to call a relative. I've talked to him many times. What makes this time any different? I don't want to do it. That's what makes it different. It requires me to be crucified to do it. And what am I concerned about? That I'll be crucified when I do it. And yet that is what the kingdom is. If we do what we want when we want, he is not our Lord. But when we place a higher priority on his desires than our own, now we're something that is supernatural. How is his yoke easy and his burden light? It's easy and it's light because when you give up the steering of your life to him, it's no longer yours to steer. It becomes difficult when we're arguing with him about the speed we want to go, when we're arguing with him about what lane we want to be in and whether or not we should follow his GPS or our roadmap. You know the thing I hate worse about a GPS? Recalculating. I hate that phrase. I'm going to tell you the truth. If you ride with me sometimes, you'll hear me say, shut up, don't you tell me what to do. I'm speaking to the GPS, not you. And it's because I like to have a route set. I like to get my plan in mind. And I don't care how hard it is, how long it is. If it's 18 hours, it's 18 hours. But I like to know. And I do not like my plan to change. Of course, that's my plan. What if it's not mine? 
What if the plan is to step when he says step and go where he says go? Well, then you don't get a chance to make 10-year projections. Doesn't the book of James warn us against doing things like that? There was a time period I worked for a financial institution. And while I worked for that financial institution, I was selling investments. So in our lives, we did everything that was prudent, right? I mean, I, I did the things that I taught other people to do. When you sell investments, by the way, you tend to use 10, 20, and 30-year projections. If a 25-year-old man puts X amount of dollars into this, then when he is 60 years old, this is what will be there. Do you know how hard it is to do that as a spirit-filled Christian? I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this paycheck, much less the one 25 years from now, and I'm not suggesting that we don't be prudent. I'm suggesting that our plans can never be ours. Now, I told you I was going to encourage you, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm trying. This means that your life is supposed to look a little bit like it does. You are not some aberration. You are not some strange anomaly in the kingdom where trials are happening to you alone. This is why the book of James says consider it pure joy when these things happen. Gabriel's not in here, is he? There he is. So Gabriel came to work with me yesterday. How many of you when you were 12 would just love to swing a sledgehammer all day and break up concrete and move bricks? I mean, if you have the choice on a Saturday to stay in bed or play Xbox or eat Twinkies or whatever Gabe's normally doing, ho-ho cakes, how many of you want to get out of bed on a Saturday morning and go break up concrete? So Gabriel was, he's dragging just a little bit, right? Not a lot, just a little bit. Maybe he was there physically, but the corners of his mouth were pointing towards hell rather than heaven. It's tough to live with a preacher. Elliot, you grew up in a Christian house. It's difficult, isn't it? So I said, oh, tell me, Gabe, if you were going to preach a sermon today, what would that sermon be? See, Curtis, that's how you got to do him when he gives you a hard time. You're going to preach today, what would your sermon be? He says, well, Daddy, I've been studying James 1, 2. I said, have you now? What does James 1, 2 say? He said, consider it pure joy when you face diverse trials of all kinds. I said, how do you think that applies to your life today? I'm happy to be here, Daddy. See, we talk about the Word as we walk along the road when we go in and when we come out. And Gabe did a fine job. Charlie, didn't he do a fine job? He did it. He got to load concrete. He got to break up bricks. He got to shovel dirt carry dad's tools, all kind of things. Life is not full of what you would choose to do. If it was full of what you choose to do, you are the Lord of your life. But for the rest of us that have taken on his easy yoke, his light burden, we've decided to let him choose for us what we do. And the only pain involved in that is when it requires us to crucify a nature that does not want to be obedient to him. But when I have followed that nature, it killed me anyway. Anybody in here died before you died on the cross? <laughs> I died many deaths before then. I was killing myself regularly. In fact, our idea of a good time was to poison ourselves all day and late into the night. That was our idea of a good time. And if somebody was throwing up, it made it an even better party when we told the story the next day. 
killing ourselves. The kingdom is about learning to do the right thing. It's not too hard for us to have a total surrender. We can give him total control over our lives. We cannot let our familiarity with this church language inoculate us from the truth of actually living it out. We are to be about the purpose of God. And the purpose of this Hillel sandwich as we move forward is really to make us proper representatives of the King of Kings. There's some parables in Matthew. Let's talk about them for a minute. How many of you have read the book of Matthew? Okay, that's most of you. I give you references, but I'm not going to turn there. Is that okay? Because when I say parable of the sower, most of you have heard the parable of the sower. We're not going to turn there because there's some other things I want to get to, but I want you to consider the audience here. Matthew 7, 24, a house on the rock versus the sand. Everybody familiar with that? House on the rock versus the sand. They all heard the word of God, and they all began to build but some didn't build well. Guys, this is spoken to believers. It's not spoken to the lost. It's spoken to people who responded to the word of God and began to build, but one built well and the other did not build well. Matthew 13, 3, parable of the soils and the sower. One didn't build, two did build, but failed out, and only one made it with fruit. This is not spoken to unbelievers. This is spoken to people who were the sons of God. They were adopted by God when they came out of Egypt. Matthew 13, 24, wheat and weeds. They both grew together in the same field and they looked alike. But one in the end was rejected and the other accepted. Matthew 13, 47, this is a crazy one. The kingdom of God is like a net that was let down into the sea and it pulled ashore all kinds of of fish, and they threw the bad ones back. Caught in the net of the gospel, brought to the shore by the fishermen of God, but thrown back in the end. Matthew 18, 21, the unmerciful servant, a servant with his own debts canceled, but imprisoned others rather than forgive them. This was spoken to a man whose debts were canceled. Parable of the vineyard workers, Matthew 20, verse 1. All were paid employees, but some ended up first and the others last based on their behavior. Matthew 21, 28, parable of the two sons. Both sons, but one obedient and the other not. Parable of the tenants, Matthew 21, 33. In the kingdom, but later it was taken away and given to others. That's eight parables from the book of Matthew that was spoken to the church of its day, warning them how they treated other people, how they lived or did not live out the words of God. Do you think there's room for that in our teaching? Do you think that the people of God need to be told that we have to consider the manner in which we're building? Today is an opportunity for us to eat a Hillel sandwich, for us to look at the repentance that is horseradish. Let it burn us just a little bit because the Word of God is about to wrap itself all the way around us and bring healing, nurturing, restoration. He's not going to leave us in a position that is just burning and repentance. 
It just has to start there. There is a place in our hearts to go further in the kingdom. The reason there's such staunch warnings in Matthew, and yet the burden is light, is he is underscoring his need to reign daily in our actions towards others. This couldn't be displayed any better than it is in the book of Numbers. How many of you believe the gospel's displayed in the book of Numbers? I mean, like, if you're going to witness tomorrow, Numbers is where you would turn. Dustin's nodding yes. I just can't fathom that anybody would want to witness out of the book of Numbers. And yet in Numbers 2, we find something beautiful. Turn with me there. Have you given up on me? Horseradish burning our eyes and we can't make it to the encouragement? DJ, have you given up on me? Y'all love DJ? I love DJ. I think he's a special young man. I don't think he quite understands yet all that God's called him to do. And that's okay. Who does at 11, 12, 13 years old? At best, there's a seed planted in there that is the job of the people of God to water and watch it grow into maturity. I think he's worth watering, worth pruning even, worth encouraging. God is going to raise a harvest of righteousness out of this congregation. He told us when there were only a handful of us in the living room, and today we're stretching out in every direction. Our little church this year already is approaching $100,000 in foreign missions. Our little church is touching five continents in some way. Our little church is supporting more than seven missionaries on a, a regular basis. Our little church is doing an awful lot, and it's not nearly enough. Our glory is in what we can do for Him. Our glory is in the chance to live for Him and Him be enthroned in our lives. Are you in Numbers 2? The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, The Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting, some distance from it, each man under his standard and with the banners of his family. Standard and with the banner of his family. God said this. Now he's going to lay out the directions in which he wants them to live. Could you think of a more meaningless detail to put in the Bible? than how many Judites there were and what direction they were facing, how many Gadites there were and who they had to stand next to, how many Reubenites there were, how, 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 what tribes stood next to them. Are you like me that sometimes you read something like this and you're like, okay, next, right? Like I'm sure there's a profound lesson in here, but you know, we'll have to wait for Matthew to explain it to us because uh, I don't get it. Look at verse 3. On the east, towards the sunrise, the divisions of the camp of Judah. Verse 10. On the south will be the divisions of the camp of Reuben. Verse 18. On the west will be the divisions of the camp of Ephraim. On the north will be the divisions of the camp of Dan, was verse 25. He picks a compass direction and says, who has to camp facing that direction? Meaningless details, right? God fills his Bible with just minutiae, huh? Keep your finger here. Turn with me to the book of Revelation. Say Revelation 4. Revelation 4, 2. 
At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had the face of a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings with which was covered with eyes all around, even under the wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, what's it say? Is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. How awesome is the setting we're reading about? How many of you would long to be in that throne room looking at the presence of God? Susan, put that display up for numbers. I mapped out four or five years ago the tribes in which direction they face. Judah is the first. He faced the east. Judah means may he be praised. And the standard for Judah on the flag is a lion. To the south was Reuben. His name means behold a son. And the standard on his flag was a man. Ephraim to the west means doubly blessed. And the standard on his flag is an ox. To the north was Dan. It means he that judges. And the standard on his flag is an eagle. In the center was the tabernacle of God where the Ark of the Covenant sat symbolizing his throne. When I looked at the tribes, I realized that the same faces on the living creatures, that of a lion, that of a man, that of an oxen, and that of an eagle, were the tribes of Israel. And God was sitting on top of them. When his glory cloud moved during the day, what did they have to do? What if they had just stopped? I mean, what if they'd only been there a day? When the cloud moved, they moved. When the cloud stopped, what'd they do? You know why? Because he's literally enthroned upon his people. The same picture they're carrying out on the earth is a mirror image of the picture that is in the heavens. The book of Hebrews declares that Moses saw into the heavens and made on the earth a copy that resembled what was in the heavens. The way that God ordered his people looks like a meaningless detail. Maybe like pick up the phone and call that relative you don't want to. And yet somehow in the actions of his people following the details, he says he is enthroned on top of it. In the heavenly realm, if you could see it, you could say, oh yeah. When the Molochs did that, God was riding on their shoulders. Oh, yeah. When Alex and Haley did that, God was presiding on their shoulders. Everywhere Israel moved, it was a message. These are princes with me. It's what their name means. And I am enthroned upon their movements. Why is it important that we do unto others as we would have them do unto us? Why is it important that we walk in the footsteps of Jesus? It's how we show the world that he's enthroned upon us. 
You love when you read Revelation 4 and you see a picture of the heavenly realm, but we're supposed to see a picture of the heavenly realm in our own actions every day. And when you don't see it in your actions, you're supposed to look in the community of the faith and go, I saw what Cassidy did, and that shows me beyond any shadow of a doubt God is with us. We're supposed to be encouraged by those who are around us and the fact that God is enthroned in their lives. Are your actions encouraging people? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5. Say there when you're there. 2 Corinthians 5, 16. This is the hope of the gospel laid out for us. So from now on, we regard no one according to a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. In other words, nothing is a meaningless detail anymore. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what is he? Did you have our time yesterday? Well, today you're being made new in the image of your mind. He is a new creation. The old has and the new has. The old has gone and the new has. You know, this is such an interesting thing. The truth is the old is perishing through your neglect of it. Oh, evil's always right there with you. I mean, Paul said it in Romans 7. The good that you do not want to do is always right there with you, but the more you neglect it, the more you say no to it, it is dying away. And what else is happening to you daily? You're called new daily. And you have a chance to walk in that newness each day. We have a choice, friends, whether we want to be a part of what is destroying the word world, a demolition crew, or we want to be a part of a construction crew. Jesus Christ appeared to destroy the devil's work. That's the only thing we're allowed to demolish, what the devil is building. But in our lives, we are defined by building things into people. That means we do for them what we would want done for us, and that is heavenly. It's godly. He has to be enthroned on a people like that because there's no way they would do it if he wasn't. All this is from God who reconciled who? Us. All this is from God who reconciled? Oh, no. Come on. All this is from God who reconciled? Oh, my goodness. To himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. If you are reconciled, what is your ministry? Reconciliation. We have a job to do. As Christ is enthroned upon our lives, as we step where he says step, he is bringing us into encounter after encounter that is meant to restore people. Now, how many of you have read the book of Jeremiah? In the first chapter of Jeremiah, the 10th verse, he's told the really interesting thing. He's told basically that he is there to root up and to tear down nations and also to build and to plant. I think too many Christians have focused too much on the first part of Jeremiah's call. It's not our job to tear down. It's not our job to uproot. The ministry of the Holy Spirit on the earth convicts the world of guilt and sin. If they didn't know about their guilt and sin, they wouldn't be drinking and drugging themselves to death. They're trying to kill that inward voice. You know what they don't know? They don't know that they can be reconciled to God. 
You know what's supposed to be a living, breathing, moving picture of reconciliation to God? We are. So the devil works us into little traps where we say, I would witness to them, but they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. And how do we know they don't want to hear it? Because we tried before. I don't, I'm not going to go reach out to them because the last 27 times I did. We sound like Peter saying, how many times do I forgive my brother? And yet we all know that scripture. And I, your pastor, am sitting in here this morning thinking, I'm not, I'm not doing it, Lord. Just not. We've done it. We've done it. We've done it. We've done it. And then you've got to love a church that prophesies. What did Joe stand up and say? Do it because I said so. Amen. Yes, sir. One more time. Except it may not be one more time, huh, Matthew? It might be 10,000 more times. And every time you do it, it magnifies God. Because the only reason you would ever do such a stupid thing is if you believed it honored Him. Say, Lord, I do it, but no good will come of it. Now, how could we possibly know that? How many sermons did you hear before you were born again? A guy named Don Babin was preaching the week that so many of us got shooken up for the Lord. I'd heard a thousand sermons just like it. I have no idea what made that week different. God granted me a gift of repentance. What if he is just about to grant somebody the strength to turn around and you just didn't perceive it? Is that possible? Yes, it's possible. Oh, it's hard because it requires us to do something, to take up our cross and follow him that we might find life. And it's easy because the decision was already made. We made that decision when we first called him Lord. We don't have the right to re-decide now. Oh, is that a tough word? I'm supposed to encourage you. Let's see if we can find some more in here. Here's verse 20. We are therefore Christ ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through the internet. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. What could be more encouraging than a chance to be the microphone in which God speaks? What could be more honoring than to have the Lord of glory that could use anyone and anywhere and he chose to use you. I met a woman in Israel named Rebecca Brimmer. Her daddy is a famous eschatology teacher and so we had lots to discuss. And she said she didn't remember any of her father's teachings on eschatology. That's encouraging to me as a pastor. He didn't expect his children to remember that stuff. What she remembered that he said the most was witness everywhere you go and when necessary, use words. Witness everywhere you go and when necessary, use words. Brother Charlie and I were talking the other day about a man who was closing up a fab shop in a chemical plant and he had a building project at home and he needed a certain kind of screws, and they had limitless bins of them in the plant. So he reached in and grabbed a handful. And on the way out the plant, the Lord spoke to him and said, those aren't your screws. He said, but Lord, you know, I mean, it's $2.30. It's, it's just screws. No, it's everything, because it's the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Does he have the right to tell you to put the screws back, or does he not? Jennifer and I got away with an extra gallon from Kroger's one time, and we realized it. 
like, oh, no, now we have to go back because the favor of God is not worth losing over four bucks, right? Or back then it wasn't four bucks, but whatever it was. It actually took more of our time to go return it, and the people in the store weren't happy we were returning it. We're causing them a problem. They'd rather us keep it. That's not the point. What better way to prove lordship than the Lord cares about whether or not I steal a gallon of milk? Now, you know, what battle's going on in your mind over the screws? What battle's going on in your mind over the milk? It's just milk. The Lord knows I'm not trying to steal it. He knows my heart. Why would we say that if we're, in fact, stealing it? A buddy from a long time ago named Jeffrey Newman told me a parable. He said, little Johnny was pulled into the principal's office. His daddy was called. He said, you know, I got to talk to you about little Johnny. He's stealing everybody's pencils. I have no idea why Johnny would do something like that. I bring home all the pencils Johnny could want from work. <laughs> Guys, the whole world is watching us. And our lives are to display the glory of God. And you know as well as I do, there are many that are watching, hoping that your life won't display the glory of God because it'll make them feel better about their lives. Cannot the Holy Ghost rise up in you in a way that says, I won't give them the satisfaction? I'm going to live in a way that I can be proud of. Are you going to join me? Yes. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 10. We're almost done here. Verse 8. For even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than pulling you down, I will not be ashamed of it. The Apostle Paul blinded people when he spoke a word to them. The Apostle Paul cast demons from people and he so turned upside down the city of Ephesus with his preaching that even lost people were imitating him and trying to do what he did. They burned 50,000 days' wages worth of their religious books at his preaching. Did Paul have authority? Oh, man, he did. But it was not to destroy people's lives. It was to build them up. He put himself at the end of the parade for their benefit. Do you know a single person this week that you could put your priorities behind theirs just to lift them up. See, that might not be as hard as we make it out to be, and we might make it out to be hard because it costs us something. I don't want to bring the Lord a sacrifice that doesn't cost me something. In fact, the more it hurts, the more it's proof that He's really my Lord. Those are big, tall words until you have to do it. You've heard that we had to eat crow? You don't have to eat crow, friends. You have to learn to eat a halal sandwich. It starts with repentance. And then it moves to the healing, nurturing feeling that comes from eating the Word of God knowing you've done it. Here comes our last scripture. How about this last book? This would be Ephesians. You won't have to turn out of Ephesians, but I want you to turn to Ephesians.
I'm going to read from a couple chapters in Ephesians, but we're going to start in the fourth. Verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to whose needs? That it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When we speak words that are building our brothers up, the Holy Ghost is pleased because that's the work of God. When we choose to speak words that are destroying people, cutting at people, making them lower than they were when you found them, it grieves the Spirit of God. Now, you've got a pastor with a sharp tongue. I wish my biblical sword was as sharp as my actual tongue. And I have a gifting for knowing exactly what would hurt a person. That's so sad, isn't it? My whole goal is to let that side perish through neglect and to learn to speak the edifying Word of God that leaves people better off than you found them. Because I have a ministry, just like you have a ministry, of reconciliation. And I wish it was one large battle, one great final Alamo-like last stand. But it's not. It's a battle of attrition that is fought every single day in the words that we speak. I won't turn to it because I told you I'd stay in the book of Ephesians. But Psalm 15, who may ascend my holy hill? What's it say? He who casts no slur upon his fellow man. Too often the body of Christ is a mean place. What the liberals say about us may not be true, but we give them ammunition for it sometimes. We don't have to use words that are mean and that are cutting to describe things in a way other than the way the Bible says it. A lot of words are not in the Bible that are in Christian vocabulary. What if we only spoke the Word of God and when we spoke the Word of God, we did it in a way that our goal was to build people up and not leave them less than we found them? Hmm? Let's close with Ephesians 2. Is that all right? Fewer and fewer responses from the congregation. Was there anything encouraging in this yet? Look, it'd be like you're on a mining expedition. I'll throw all of my gravel out there and you find some gold in it. Here comes Ephesians 2, starting in verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this not of yourselves, it was the gift of God. How did you get saved? God gave you a gift. Are you really sure he's not going to give that unreachable person the same gift? See, we watch sometimes and we see people consistently spit in the face of God and we forget that we were in the same position. And because we can see and they can't see, it's so atrocious, so egregious to us that we're like, yeah, that they may not be reprobate, but they might be. That's not ours to decide. Our job is to be an ambassador holding out reconciliation. Who knew that you were going to turn around when you did? Hmm? I mean, have you ever thought about that? The longer we've been saved, we for, it's, it's like we never were as dirty as we once were. 
Go back and ask the people who knew you then. Find some who won't lie to you. Get a little refresher course. And those of you that have grown up in the church, praise God, but what about if you'd grown up a Buddhist? What if you'd grown up a Hindu? Those people didn't do anything more than you did. A gift can be given them. The Lord is able to give someone a gift of repentance. But it's likely going to happen through one of his ambassadors holding out the word of life. That means that we have to encamp where he says encamp. We even have to get on the side of the tent he says to get on. Do you think Judah ever got tired of being the one that the sun hit the first during the day? I mean, do you think any of the tribes ever said, you know, why did those guys always get to be on the shady side? I know that they did. I know they did because we look around and we act like our Christian walk is so much harder than hers. You know, what God requires of me is, I mean, Dustin doesn't have to do anything that God requires of me. That's why my office has got those signs everywhere. It says no whining. Really? It really is. That's why. Whatever we get to do for the Lord is a blessing. And that's the right perspective. We actually are supposed to refer to ourselves simply as unworthy servants who got a chance to do His will. In all of our charismatic glory, preaching about the righteousness of God and Christ Jesus that's credited us, we need to not lose that perspective. We're not just sinners. We are saints, but where did we start? We started as just sinners. How about this? Ephesians 2, verse 19. Consequently... You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. That's a family. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Just as God arranged His people Israel in the middle of a desert, and I can assure you they wanted to live somewhere else. Just as God said, this tribe will stand on the east side, this one on the west side, this one on the south, and this one on the north, and it pictured something in the heavenlies that they couldn't even see. He is ordering the events of your life according to Psalm 37. He's actually numbered your footsteps in the walk you're supposed to have with Him. And it is speaking a heavenly message that God is enthroned upon your life. That's not just a metaphor. It's actually the truth. First Peter says, the spirit of His glory rests on your shoulders when you are persecuted for His sake. Why? because you would never choose to be persecuted if it were not for His sake. If you could avoid it, you would. We have a high calling in Christ Jesus. And I'm not here today telling you you're not living up to it. I'm here today telling you that this is normal Christianity. And of course it's hard, Steph, but as you do it, isn't it rewarding to know God's pleased with you? Oh, it is. Jacob, you're a young man with a pure heart. Jacob had a vision the other night that is shaking. It's amazing. We're going to let him preach about it here soon. It's proof that God's enthroned 
upon his life. But I remember when he was just 16 and I was concerned the only reason he walked through our church doors was to steal our sound equipment. Does that surprise y'all? Michael's not who he was when he was 16. He's not. Now where he goes, the kingdom of God shows up because he's an ambassador of the king. Justin's not who he once was. See, that's how the kingdom works. You have a chance to put it on display. You have a chance to show the whole world God is enthroned upon your life. And it's displayed in the obedience that hurts. That's the other thing that Psalm 15 says. He who keeps his vow, even when it hurts. So you've made vows to the Lord, haven't you? Let's stand our feet and let's make good on our vows.